Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, we're taking a, a break um, from preaching from the lectionary, which is our normal practice, because uh, through Lent we wanted to talk about the sedly, seven deadly sins or the seven capital vices, and uh, we needed to start before Lent to do that. If you didn't happen to, to um, be here last week, you might want to um, make this one time that you do uh, go back and maybe listen to last Sunday, because I think there were some orienting thoughts ab about how to understand uh, the seven deadly sins that would be helpful. These seven deadly under, uh, sins are understood as the capital vices, not because they're necessarily the worst, but because these seven are persistent temptations, pernicious habits of character that vex us. Wherever humans roam, you will find these vices, and they are the source for all kinds of ruin. We said last week how that um, these were actually used in much of the history of the church in what would be called confession manuals. And I think there's a picture of one here. This is uh, Peraldus's Vice and Virtues. And there's a, a symbol for each matched with a virtue, actually, that opposes it. Um, and, uh, and lots of ways that these vices uh, sh flourish in the, human, uh, in the human heart. You can move past that. Peter Bruegel the Elder in the 17th century did seven carvings of the seven deadly sins, and each week we'll offer that. You might want to look them up because I know you can't see the detail. There's a, there's a lot in there to ponder and explore, but this is the one from Pride. While there are seven of these vices, with vainglory being the first, vainglory is not a word we use very often, pride is actually set apart by many, all the way from Gregory the Great to Aquinas, probably even back further before Gregory. And many have understood pride to be the root of all the other vices. Pride is an excessive self-preoccupation that consistently seeks to, say, to, to place self above all others. Frederick Buechner said, self-love or pride is a sin when instead of leading you to share with others the self that you love, which is a right thing, it leads you to keep yourself in perpetual self-deposit. Pride is insanely destructive when it seeks, as it always will, to place self above God. To want good for one's self is right. In fact, the scriptures say that we are to love ourselves in an appropriate way. But this good desire becomes gnarled and warped when it becomes our obsession when we begin to surrender to the delusion that we are ultimately the ones who are the source of our own goodness. Whenever we be begin to believe the lie that we are the ones who actually know, finally, the good. When we are the ones who can provide for ourselves all this meaning, all this goodness that we do crave. Augustine said, God is the fount of our blessedness, and he is the goal and the good of all our desires. For our good 
is nothing other than to cling to him. In Proverbs, one of the words for pride carries the idea of something swelling or boiling and bubbling up. It's like the imagery we get um, from Paul when he says that knowledge puffs up. It's when we devote our energy working very hard at appearing or being larger than we actually are. It's when the story of our life always and inevitably circles and circles, but it always works its way back to us. One version of pride is recounted in 2 Chronicles 26, where a 16-year-old boy, if you can imagine such a thing, a 16-year-old boy, Uzziah, is made king. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. Uzziah was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. Can you imagine how small and insecure and unsteady Uzziah must have felt being handed the throne at the age of 16? But he reigned for 52 years, and he was an immensely successful king, particularly as it goes in Israel's history. Uzziah desired to follow God, and God was always ready to help him. And this is how the scriptures put it. Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. And over the decades, it is a massive litany of success. You could read through Isaiah 26 over about the next 10 or 12 verses, and it's just this glowing announcement of all the marvelous things King Uzziah did. He restored cities. He constructed great towers. He dug massive cisterns, which would have meant a new way of delivering water to the people, which would have changed their very existence. He built massive farms and expansive vineyards and great hordes of livestock. Uzziah's army became like the Green Berets of their day. They were lethal. They were loyal. They were impressive. Chronicles notes there were 307,500 fighting men ready to move at the slightest hint that Uzziah wanted them to act. And that kind of thing, we know, will go to a fellow's head. Uzziah made sure his army had all the latest gear, the biggest weapons, the lightest armor, the sort of stuff that would make the Pentagon salivate. And in Jerusalem, the scripture says, he made machines designed by skillful men for use on the towers and on the corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. This was new technology. He had the best missiles, the biggest missiles, the most impressive armaments, fast and deadly drones, the best around, Uzziah had finally arrived. Uzziah was now officially big stuff. And then we hear these ominous words. Uzziah's fame spread far and wide. 
for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. There really is something about power, isn't there? Our thirst for it, and even worse, what happens to it if we ever actually get it. There's something about power that used improperly, divorced from a kind of humility that restructures how we use power, it sinks a blade of cold steel in the human heart. Something kills us. That's right. Amen. We need more of those in this church. Maybe it's not so much power itself, but rather what power represents for us. Maybe what it tempts so many of us toward. That hideous lie that we really are a force unto ourselves. That we really don't need God. That we really don't need God's image bearers. We really don't need one another. Wasn't this Adam and Eve's great sin? To believe that they didn't really need God? Wasn't this Cain's sin in murdering Abel? To believe that he could take for himself what only God could give him. Wasn't this a sin at the Tower of Babel? The idea that we can grasp for ourselves what in truth can only be given by God as gift. Isn't this somehow at the root of all of our most destructive temptations, the idea that we can be for ourselves or grab for ourselves what only God can be or what only God can give? And so this is why pride is often considered the root of the other device, uh, vices. It is that first fundamental distortion, the placing of self above God. And that distortion always leads to our ruin. Not because of petty divine vanity, as if God doesn't like being upstaged, like some kind of two-bit personality that wants all the limelight, it's rather because it is, in fact, actually a distortion. It is a warped view of the way things truly are. If we think that we can step off the Empire State Building and just hover there delightfully like a humming, hummingbird, uh, we're going to get smashed. If we think that we can take the role of God and maneuver to create our own happiness and joy, it's going to end poorly. And this is why the first commandment is a commandment about idolatry, if you read the Ten Commandments. It's to have no other gods before God. Because once any other god takes that throne, and self may be the most seductive of them all, all kinds of other wreckage follows. And when you go to the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, sight, uh, mind, and soul, and body, love your neighbor as yourself, it's why that commandment begins with loving the Lord our God. If we don't square that away, then we're not actually going to be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because we won't even properly love ourselves. We'll love ourselves in a warped, destructive way. We are marvelous, beloved creatures of God, and so are our neighbors. But this love for ourselves, this love for one another, comes from God. 
And once we remove ourselves from this flow of love, the whole thing just goes absolutely batty. Whenever we're proud, we think much of ourselves and little of others. We belittle others or use others to think our needs or safety or image or intellect is so vast, so superior. We're condescending. We compare. Sometimes pride is immensely internal. It goes almost unnoticeable by people around you. It can be covered by the art of false humility. But still, we think about ourselves all the time. Kathleen Norris said, idolatry makes love impossible. And once we have some success or we get a taste of prominence or expertise or knowledge, which Paul says puffs up, there is often trouble. This is the words that Chronicles offers us. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride became his downfall. And there's a shadow side of pride, something we don't connect here very often. It's shame. Shame is often what happens to us when pride doesn't pay off. Mike Mason put it this way, shame is what a proud man feels when he has nothing left to be proud of. It means continuing to hang on to pride even when every possible basis for pride has disappeared. This last week, I was struggling in an uh, area of my life, um, something that for the past couple years just seems to continually bewitch me. And I was feeling, I think, an appropriate amount of soberness about that, then overwhelmed with shame about it. And I, uh, it's one evening, I, I was telling Miska about it, and I said, man, I'm just, I'm just really inundated with shame. And Miska said, well, does it help at all to, to know that usually when you feel shame, it's really just about your ego? I thought, no. <laughs> That actually, that actually is worse. Because now I have something else to feel bad about. But it's true. I think shame is often attached to pride. But then we had two words here, pride and vainglory. Vainglory is pride's kissing cousin. It's not the same thing, but it is really close. Pride wants to be king of the hill the top, the smartest, the wealthiest, the most insightful, the most creative, the most unique, the most dependable, the powerful one. But often, if someone is overwhelmed with pride, often whether or not others know about that is less important. Vainglory, however, cares little about whether we're actually smart, wealthy, insightful, powerful, as long as people think that we are. It's all about finding meaning from others' opinions. Comparison rules the day here. The prideful person looks in the mirror and says, man, you are something awesome. The vainglorious person looks in someone else's eyes and says, am I something? This reminds me of uh, Matthew chapter 6. You might remember this scripture where... We're receiving these instructions about 
These come from the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have your reward from the Father. It goes on and says, And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And I tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. You know why they receive the reward in full? Because it's the only reward we're looking for. We're looking for that shallow, flash-in-the-pan reward that comes from that one moment when someone else sees, when someone else recognizes, when someone else somehow makes us okay. And those of us who get caught in those places know that it's never enough. When we start doing the comparison game, it, man, it lasts for a moment. And then we are on to the next need. All of this comes from many things, but one of the things it seems is from this fear that we're really empty inside. That there really isn't anything profoundly good about us. And it's a vicious lie, but it snags like a meat hook. I mean, it digs in there. Because this is the distortion here. We are meant to be seen. You are delightful. When that is missed, it is a tragic wound. But it's a cheap and dehumanizing counterfeit to try to wrench that approval from someone by putting forth a false image, a false self. And it ultimately destroys because it distances us from people. It distances us from ourself. It distances us from God because we're constantly hiding. We're constantly putting on masks. We're constantly refusing to offer what is true about us. And the difficult thing is, is that this abounds in the church. We are really good moralists. We like to live by shoulds, and we have a strong moral foundation. And when we don't measure up to that, perhaps because of pride, shame kicks in, and then often we'll put on a mask and act like it isn't true. The church, we would hope, would be the place where we can be most honest, because we have the grace. <laughs> Nothing's at stake. Your acceptance and value isn't at stake. You're loved regardless. And isn't the whole story that we seek to live by sort of based on the foundation that we're not okay? And isn't it remarkable the amount of energy we spend trying to act all the time like we are? Thomas Merton said, pride makes us artificial and humility makes us real. And this is what God wants. God wants for us to come with our true self, our whole self, to find the love that will always welcome us, that always delights, that will, yes, point out the muck and call us to something truer, but does it while standing right there with us, never shaming, never rejecting, always present. So each week we're going to offer a kind of practice to um, the countenance 
that vice. And if these aren't helpful to you, then find your own. Um, but often to, count, to, to uh, counteract pride or vainglory, the practice is silence and solitude. It's refusing at times to follow that immediate impulse to always put ourselves forward, to always need to have the right word, to say the right thing, to make sure everyone in the room knows that we're smart too. It's a way to allow ourselves to be quiet enough to actually hear the voice of love. So it's finding your own way to be quiet internally and even with those around you. And if perhaps you're, uh, you operate in a different way and your version of pride actually keeps you quiet, well, then maybe you'll need to speak up. Then maybe you will need to say something that, that is vulnerable. Maybe you'll need to speak something that feels costly and exposing and dangerous. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.